Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Of a seeker of wisdom and truth. Yeah, there's that up turn, chin, and the grin of impetuous youth. Setting aside the fact that the person singing that song, on stage anyway, is singing to himself in the mirror, it's one of many songs that does begin to sum up what we think of as charisma. Uh, And I should say that this is um, a topic that we've been kind of had on our list of episodes to do, and I said to Lily Tyson at a certain point, we have to move this up. We're already in the middle of the 2024 election cycle, despite it being 2023. And this is going to be important. It is important every time. We have to think about charisma, what it means. You know, it's. I think we know that it's an unearned quality. You don't get charisma by working hard at it. <laughs> you either have it or you don't. And in fact, some of its unearnedness, some of the way in which it seems to be kind of a gift bestowed from, from elsewhere, which is also very much in the roots of the word, but some of that is part of its charm and power. This person has been chosen to be a certain way. Um, it's also, I think, characterized a little bit by its unexpectedness. We don't talk about, so much anyway, about actors having charisma. I mean, we don't not say that, but it's kind of expected. If you're a movie star, you have star quality, you have, quote, it, unquote. That's sort of charisma, but it's also kind of understood. Movie stars are supposed to be charismatic. Why make a fuss about it? Um, But politicians, preachers, salespeople, those are the people who, when they have charisma, we notice it and it has an effect on us. Um, So let's uh, talk a little bit uh, to some people who know more about this than I do, so I'll shut up. Uh, And joining us now, I should say, at the end of the show, we're going to talk about charismatic megafauna. This is a great Lily Tyson pivot. Uh, but there's there are certain animals that just get more attention than other animals, <laughs> um, and and that has all kinds of ramifications. But right now we're going to talk to John excuse me John Antonakis, a professor of organizational behavior at the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, he is someone who has written, spoken, and thought very deeply about the question of charisma. So first of all, John, welcome to our conversation. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Colin. And let's begin by seeing if we can put this lightning in a bottle a little bit. It's a hard word to define, right? We define charisma almost more in terms of the effect it has on other people. But it's hard to say what the word itself means, except I bet you can do it. Well, I hope so. Um, We like to distinguish signaling charisma from the charismatic effect. So whether someone sees another person as charismatic depends if they share values with that individual, and if the qualities they signal appeals to them. So, for example, paradoxically, charisma can create a love-hate tension. Um, You know, Barack Obama is objectively very charismatic, uh, but certainly not in Oklahoma. Um, Ditto for Trump, 
who is not particularly charismatic, but he would be seen um, as quite charismatic to certain conservative audiences. So we need to distinguish what charisma is, the signaling component of it, which has to do with signaling emotions, signaling values, and speaking in symbolic ways, triggering imageries, pictures, using metaphors. So we need to distinguish the signaling effect from the charismatic effect happening. So those are two different things. All right. So since you're talking about presidents and presidential candidates, I'm going to play a clip for you. Uh, the year is 1992. Uh, President George H.W. Bush is the incumbent president. He's running against a real newcomer, uh, the Arkansas governor, Bill Clinton. Uh, this is a 1992 debate. And let me just say a couple of things about this. So you're going to see what th there's things that you can't see because this is radio. Uh, but at the beginning of this clip, Bush is finishing up his remarks and he's kind of standing pretty stock still. Uh, it's a bit of a distance from the audience. This is a town hall format where the uh, debaters can move around a bit. Uh, they have that uh, option. Uh, and when you um, when you see Clinton on this, when Clinton when you hear Clinton start speaking, what you would have seen is Clinton moving very slowly toward the person who's asked a question. Um, and uh, you'll hear him say, clarify how it affected you again. But uh, he's very much sort of putting himself um, in, in contact with this person who's asked a question. All right, Kat, this is A1. That's why I'm trying to do something about it by stimulating the export, investing more, better education systems. Thank Governor you. Clinton, Glad to clarify. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um, you know people who've lost their well, jobs, yeah. lost their homes. Uh -huh. Well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. Every year, Congress and the President sign laws that makes us, make us do more things and gives us less money to do it with. I see people in my state, middle class people, their taxes have gone up in Washington and their services have gone down while the wealthy have gotten tax cuts. I, I have seen what's happened in this last four years when in my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. And I've been out here for 13 months, meeting in meetings just like this, ever since October, with people like you all over America. All right. All right. So, John, I'm just going to let you react to that. Yeah, well, I think uh, Clinton is very good in bringing up many anecdotes um, that will appeal to the um, individuals listening. And not only that, but he very cleverly signals what people are thinking, what people are hoping, what people are fearing. So he's he's using one of the techniques that we call um, signaling the sentiments of the collective, um, and then and then using also storytelling, using anecdotes um, and and strong imageries to close the psychological gap between the individuals he's trying to influence and himself, and show that they he really understands them. So you know these images that he that he that he conjures are, are very very salient. And because of that, it stimulates certain emotional, um, uh, um, emotional um, uh, reactions in the audience, and, and they will identify with him. Right. I would say another thing that he does that I think is very much in, in, in your ballpark, um, I, don't, I didn't count how many times he used the pronoun you in that answer, but he use, uses it a lot of times. He starts by saying, clarify how it affected you. Uh, but you, you, you. There's a way, I think, in which charismatic people, it, it was said of Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, uh, up, into her, up until her fall from grace, that she, when she talked to you, you felt like the most important person in the world. And it seems to me that's one of the things charismatic people are good at, is kind of cutting down the size of the room and making it feel like it's just you and that person. 
Absolutely, and and I think he also shows that he's closer to the people because I, if I if I remember correctly, I was in the U.S. at that time. I was doing my master's degree, um, and yeah, and I think he he kind of um, distinguished himself by by uh, identifying with the people that had economic difficulties and and painting him as you know the rich kid with a born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Right. I mean, Clinton Clinton was mocked. To your earlier point, there's a way in which what plays in Massachusetts might not play in Oklahoma. And there is also a way in which Clinton was mockable. Uh, and so so the, you know, the summation of the answer that we just heard here was his famous, I feel your pain line. And people made fun of him for that. But I actually think in retrospect, that was a rather powerful thing to say. I feel your pain. And he was, in fact, making a distinction between himself and President Bush, who didn't for for whatever virtues he might have had, he just didn't come across that way. Exactly. And I'm just looking at a data table that I have because we've studied the U.S. elections going back to 1916. Um, and Clinton was certainly much more charismatic, objectively speaking, when we coded his speeches for the use of, you know, these imageries, metaphor, rhetorical questions, collective sentiments, all these things that we look at. Um, and, and he was very substantially higher than George Bush was. On the other hand, I'm also wondering about charisma. I mean, I, I've looked at your research and it's fascinating, but isn't there a part of charisma that starts before that? I mean, there's a way, there's a 2007 study that was done on what was called rapid and unreflective face judgments of politicians. Uh, and the subjects were given uh, sometimes 100 milliseconds, that's like a tenth of a second, or 250 milliseconds, that's a quarter of a second, I think, uh, to yeah. look at a picture of a politician. Uh, and, and these were people who were running for a governor or senator, and using that, that just that glance, they were able to predict 68.6% of the time who was going to win the governorship, 72.4% of the time who was going to win the Senate, and giving them more time to think about it and reflect on it reduced their accuracy. Their snap judgment was more accurate than their thought. And it seems to me a lot of this does happen in, at, at first blush. Colin, you're absolutely right. And, and actually, that's where my story began and why I started studying charisma. Uh, I got tenured in 2005, six somewhere there, and a colleague of mine sent me the study. It was by Alexander Todorov at Princeton University. And I freaked out because as a professor of leadership, uh, what I saw was that, uh, you know, being successful, at least in low information um, high stakes elections um, depends largely on whether you look competent. So I, I doubted the results of the study and I reran the same study in Switzerland. I got a very similar result and I, I then took little kids um, between the ages of five and, and, and 12 and, and I couldn't distinguish the votes of the kids from the adults. So it turns out that when you don't have a lot of information on the individual, the first thing you do is you observe you look at what they resemble and you classify them and you impute characteristics to them that they may or may not have. And then you don't like to change your mind afterwards. So, you know, you put on your filters and you process information that's consistent with your expectations. And, and that's what really got me interested in charisma, because I thought, is it possible to change the original classification if we signal our competence through what we say? And it turns out that if the person is given more time to speak, Despite what they look like, their race or their origin, you know, take Obama, for example, uh, the first black president or Margaret Thatcher, the first prime minister of uh, Britain, um, you know, they were exceptionally good at signaling charisma despite the initial look. So, you know, if you were to do uh, these snap judgments, um, they, they certainly wouldn't come up as high as they do um, when we hear them speak. So the, the, the rhetoric and what you say can trump 
um, override the impact of the initial classification. And that's a hard thing to do because people don't like changing their minds. As you said, Colin, you know, well, even if you give them more information, which they did in one version of the experiment, they said, you know, the, the guy you just voted for is a Democrat, Republican or what have you. People didn't want to change their minds very much, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Right. And there's a way in which this may, be, may have been evolutionarily adaptive. Uh, there's something uh, Antonio Damasio, Damasio developed the somatic marker hypothesis. He basically says that the human emotional systems are actually needed to make good decisions. They, yes. they, weave, they braid themselves into our logical choices. But to try to make decisions without our emotional reactions to things and people probably makes us less effective. But yeah, your thoughts there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I agree with what he's saying, and we need these emotion, uh, these emotional markers. Um, but going back to what you said earlier about the evolutionary argument, you know, in the savanna, eighty, a thousand, a hundred thousand years ago, the way information was retained and transmitted was through anecdotes, storytelling, symbolic ways. So, if we were to do an experiment and randomize leaders who had the capacity to capture information and transmit it in in symbolic ways about how to go to war, uh, how to defend ourselves, how to find a good spouse where to find food in times of drought. You know, those um, tribes had an evolutionary advantage. They, they were able to increase their fitness. Um, so it turns out, we, we just ran an experiment recently that charisma is a costly signal. So just like a springbok jumps high to signal its fitness to a potential mate or to a lion, and by the way, the lions don't even try to catch springboks that jump high because it, it doesn't make any sense. They'll never catch them. So, you know, if the signal is honest, it increases the fitness both of the springboks and the lions. And in the case of charisma, it turns out that being able to speak in such complex and simple ways, paradoxically, depends very, very much on the individual's intelligence. If you are smart, you're able to see condition, action, links, patterns, infer from them, and then project a vision that's, um, or, or use metaphor in, in ways that take something very complicated and simplifies it. So, for example, Martin Luther King, when he, when he said, in the sense, we've come to the nation's capital to cash a check. Um, when the architects of the Republic signed the magnificent words of the Constitution, they were giving everyone a promissory note. And then he said, insofar as my people are concerned, we have received a bad check, a check marked insufficient funds. Now, that metaphor is so clever. And, and to be able to produce metaphor that's so clean and crisp and, and appeals to a large swathe of a population, you have to be very smart. So when an individual hears another individual using these techniques, they assume they're intelligent. And it turns out this assumption is actually evolutionarily um, <laughs> selected for, and it, de it depends largely on the individual's intelligence. Of course, education matters. You know, if you're born smarter and, and you have better role models, of course, you will you will uh, you will learn to to use these things, but but it can be trained. It's a skill that can be acquired. And and we did an experiment in 2011 where we showed uh, we had smart people. They were engineers from a, a high tech company um, that we randomized to treatment and control. And the ones who were trained um, with the charismatic leadership three months later were veritably more charismatic. I want to come back to that in, in just a second. I, first of all, I want to just roll the tape back a little bit and just uh, because, John, you, you used the most South African analogy ever. So for our American audiences, a springbok is like an antelope, uh, just so they know. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's called a springbok because spring means jump in German and in old Dutch so that they pronk, they, they boast, they brag by jumping high up in the air. <laughs> so I, I, I want to um, just take a moment. So Martin Luther King uh, Jr. is a great example of um, somebody 
who used his his charisma uh, for for good. I think most of us would agree that not every racist in America would agree that, but most of us would agree about that. But I think there's a way in which, and maybe you can say a little bit about this. Charisma really can cover a multiple a multitude of sins. Bin Laden was reputed to be very charismatic. In fact, one of the criticisms of uh, Al Zawahiri, the guy who took over after him, is he didn't have Bin Laden's charisma. I mentioned Elizabeth mm. Elizabeth Holmes, who was you know running a con game essentially. I even feel as somebody who covered Bill Clinton and was in the present when Bill Clinton was speaking sometimes, like I got taken in a little bit. As I think about Bill Clinton now in the light of history, I think about him differently. And I wonder how much that charisma just knocked me for a loop a little bit and made me less rational about him. But maybe say a little bit about that, about the dangers of charisma. Sure, sure. But let me first say one thing. Let me rewind as well. Holmes was not particularly charismatic. I mean, she said extraordinary things and made extraordinary claims and and played up uh, you know things that didn't exist so she she was a liar and 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 and, and um, um she was a very good liar but but if i analyze her speeches she wasn't particularly charismatic uh, clinton i think you know despite what he did um and the and the scandal with uh, monica lewinsky i mean he was a smart guy a very very smart guy um he managed to achieve uh, quite a few things um, um I, I i don't think um, I, I wouldn't put him as a great president, um, uh, but, but, I, but I think he was pretty good. Um, so uh, your point about charisma being a force for good or evil is, is, is well taken. And, and as a social scientist, you know, I, I have uncovered a lever that can influence people. Money can can be a, such a lever. Um, knowledge can be such a lever. So, you know, we can, a chemist who discovers a molecule that can be used um, to cure cancer um, is using it for good. But, you know, the same process can be used to develop poisons. Uh, you know, Oppenheimer, we saw the, the film recently um, and how the atomic bomb was developed. I mean, from that also we got radiation therapy. So charisma is not inherently good or bad. Was, was Hitler charismatic? Absolutely. Um, but his values were crooked. He was an immoral person. Um, and, you know, when, when immoral people have power, uh, they will use whatever levers they can to influence others. So um, I, I really love what Warren Bennis, um, he was a leadership scholar, he wrote in uh, the second edition of my textbook. He says, we should study leadership with the same self-interest that we study diabetes or any other life-threatening diseases. It's only once we understand leaders that we'll be able to control them. So... I think it's really important to understand the process of leadership and how we make snap judgments, how we might fall under the spell of a charismatic leader. So, you know, my, my research is, is not just to, you know, understand how it works, but also to inform people of it and kind of democratize and unravel this mysticism because it's not really an alchemy. It's And it's not a gift of grace, as the word connotes in Greek charisma. It is really a set of skills, techniques, and tactics that are trainable, that we can manipulate in experimental studies, and, and we know exactly what their consequences are. Right. It's an interesting word in the sense that, you know, his earlier usages uh, were, they were profoundly religious. I mean, the charisma and charismatic faith often refers to people who've received the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so speaking in tongues and dancing in the Spirit and, and that kind of thing. And it's just turned yeah. into that, a, a much more secular kind of gift. But to that point, you know, you're talking about business leaders. And I think of business leaders now, I mean, I think of business leaders in the past, uh, and I wasn't around for Henry Ford or Andrew Carnegie, but I bet 
they were pretty charismatic and definitely in my lifetime there have been people like Jack Welch and Lee Iacocca who had a kind of charisma. We live in the era of Elon Musk uh, and Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Uh, and a lot. And to your your point about Elizabeth Holmes is good. She's not conventionally charismatic at all. There's a way in which that seems to have been stripped away, at least in certain sectors of the business world. Charisma seems to be less important. Or am I getting this wrong? Um, well, it's it's if it's very important, and I think it's something that's overlooked. Um, you know, in research that we're doing now, we look at close call gubernatorial elections in the U.S. And you know, I cannot randomize uh, governors uh, to be charismatic or not, or train half the governors who are running to be charismatic or not, and then see what happens. So, so we looked at close call elections where the margin of victory was so small that what explains the victories is, is is largely luck. You know, if the margin of victory is great, then we know there's some systemic difference between the two candidates or the economic situation in which the election was contested. But in close call elections, we show that if the the winner is charismatic, it has a huge effect on the GDP of the state a year later, controlling for state effects and time effects um, in, in the US. So I, I think it's something that is 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 not well understood. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's written on positive psychology and, you know, be good and be nice and kind and stuff like that. I mean, I, it's, I'm, I'm not against being nice and kind and, and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the, the topic wasn't really studied scientifically for the last uh, 50 years or so. Typically, um, in sociology, the old sociology literature, they studied exemplars, but they still refer to it as some mystical quality, you know, that makes people great. And they and they used examples of it, but they didn't really define what it meant. Um, the modern psychology literature was was kind of circular in defining charisma as being, you know, being inspiring and being a nice guy or being effective is charismatic. But they really didn't get to the bedrock of what charisma is. And, and it's only recently, in the last sort of 10 years or so, that we really understand it. And it's something that's a really potent force. I mean, Musk is certainly very charismatic. If you look at his speeches, he uses a lot of anecdotes, uh, metaphor. Um, uh, he's really, really pretty high on 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 that aspect. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just overlooked, and I think people don't realize how powerful it is. And that's not to say that people shouldn't be experts. I mean, I would rather get on a plane when the pilot knows how to fly the plane. You know, I don't care how charismatic the pilot is. But you know, of course, selling. Selling the, the airline and selling getting on the plane uh, would require charisma. All right. We have to uh, stop there uh, because we've got other places to go here. But this has been uh, really fascinating. Uh, John Antonakis is professor of organizational behavior at the Faculty of Business and Economics of the University of Lausanne, Switzerland. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this specifically in politics. Creatures with unprepossessing features. I remind them on their own behalf to think of celebrated heads of state or especially great communicators did they have brains or knowledge don't make me laugh <laughs> they were popular please it's all about popular it's not about aptitude it's the way you're viewed so it's very shrewd to be Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You've got that thing, you've got that thing The thing that makes birds forget to sing Yes, you've got that thing, that certain thing You've got that charm, that subtle charm That makes young farmers desert the So our next guest is uh, Russ, Russ Schriefer, uh, founding partner of Strategic Partners and Media, a public affairs political consulting firm, senior strategist for the Tell It Like It Is Super PAC that supports Chris Christie for president. He's been in the business a long time. Russ, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. So I'm going to give you a scene, and then I'll have you comment on it. So okay. it's uh, the year's 2000. Uh, it, it's, I'm in Los Angeles. It's the Democratic National Convention. Um, Al Gore uh, is about to claim the nomination at the convention. And just to make sure that nobody mistakes this ticket as ha- being full of charisma, he's also going to have Joe Lieberman as his vice president. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm standing there on the floor, just you know, watching the speeches as a reporter. And just because I'm from Connecticut, uh, Toby Moffat's standing on one side of me, and John Larson is standing on the other. And Clinton gets up. And now we've been through the impeachment. We've been through the scandal. And the Gore campaign has decided Clinton is not supposed to go out on the trail because he's got too much baggage. And Clinton starts to give one of those speeches that he gives. And I think it's Larson leans across me to Moffat and says, tell me again why we're not using this guy. Um, and and there is something about that, right? There's something about charisma, the, the kind that Reagan had, had the kind that Clinton had, that just can just blot out anything. It just can strip away the actual circumstances of a situation. But I don't know. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what charisma means to you. Well, I, I think um, I, I think what we've what we see and what what uh, your previous guests you know really talked about but didn't quite mention is just this quality of it. Right? It, it's it's a factor whether it's in politics, it's in movies, it's in theater. Um, it's in music. I mean, there are certain, and I think some of it is learned. I think some of it is uh, developed, but I think some of it is also people are born with it. I mean, there are people that you know who are not in the public sphere, but people are drawn to them. People like them. People want to be with them. Um, And, you know, Bill Clinton was certainly one of those people. Um, George W. Bush was one of those people. Um, you know, obviously Ronald Reagan is one of those people. And in fact, if we look in, in the political realm, generally the person who is more, who has more of it does tend to win in those, particularly in those big presidential races. I, I think in, in sort of statewide races, governors, senators, uh, other factors come into play. But when the spotlight is on, people want the guy, the gal that has it. Right. So when we if we try to dissect the it frog, the charisma frog, 
It seems to me that maybe one part we can tease out is the idea of authenticity. Uh, there's a sense that you're seeing the real person. Um, it helps if the real person is, I mean, I suppose in certain candidates you're seeing the real person and it's still not exciting. But there's a way in which I think one of the keys to Trump was he didn't seem like he was trying to fool anybody about, <laughs> about who he was. You feel, if you feel like you're seeing a real person, that seems to be a, a good place to begin. Yeah, listen, the one thing you can't um, sort of teach a candidate is authenticity. I mean, you know, if you I mean, I, I, I mean, we've literally I've literally been in meetings and someone will say to a, a, a candidate, you know, hey, you know, be more authentic, damn it. You know, <laughs> you know, get your authenticity up. Um, authenticity is something that I think that comes from within. It's some it's an ability to be able to share yourself in a way kind of warts and all that allows people to get to know you. And once they get to know you, they either tend to like you, maybe not all of them like you and you're, you're okay with that. You're okay with people be criticizing you. You're okay with your faults. You're, you're comfortable in your skin. Um, and I think that the ability to do that is a, particularly now is a much, much more compelling um, persona for candidates to have than where we may have been even, you know, 20, 30 years ago, where things were much more packaged, much more kind of, um, you know, uh, set um, by either strategists or, you know, or, or by candidates themselves. Right. And I think that part of that, what you're describing, uh, is also kind of knowing where you are, Um Bill Bradley, who didn't have any charisma, wrote a book called A Sense of Where You Are about basketball. Uh, and I think if you have a sense of where you are, you I mean, that's what Clinton does in that town hall moment. He knows where he is. He knows that this is different from a different kind of debate. He knows how he has to act. He knows what the moment calls for. And I think, Russ, in the way that you just described authenticity, you were wittingly or otherwise describing a guy that you like very much. So, Kat, we're going to play B3 right here. Uh, here's Chris Christie in the very recent uh, Republican debate. I think this is a moment of real authenticity, B3 cap. Do you believe that the recent spike in UFO encounters? Oh. <laughs> I get the UFO question? Is, yeah, you do. Come on, there man. No, but, but, okay, we've been hearing a lot of, we've hearing here a lot of testimony in Congress and people are taking this a lot more seriously and we're hearing that, you know, there are things going on that people aren't aware of. So, if you were president, Governor Christie, would you level with the American people about what the government knows about these possible Look, Martha, and especially coming from a woman from New Jersey, I, I think it's horrible that just because I'm from New Jersey, you asked me about unidentified flying objects and Martians. Um, we're different, but we're not that different. Um, look, uh, of course, the job of the president of the United States is to level with the American people about everything. The job of the President of the United States is to stand for truth. The job of the President of the United States is to be a role model for our children and our grandchildren. All right. So, Russ, I would say that is a really authentic moment, right? He he took the, and he knew where he was, and he took the moment and he dealt with with it. I think pretty effectively. I'm assuming you, as a backer of Christie, were, were you might not have been happy about the question, but you must have been happy about the response. Yeah, it was a great response. And 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 here's the interesting thing there, which is which goes to your point. Um, I've sat in on 
I don't want to say certainly dozens of dozens, if not hundreds of debate preps over the last 30 to 40 years. And I guarantee you that, you know, when you start peppering a candidate with potential questions that might be coming up, the the UFO question is rarely one <laughs> that that is kind of up there, which means that there's no way that, you know, Governor Christie prepared for that. That was totally, you know, on his feet, thinking fast and giving a very genuine and honest response that even I think if you didn't like Christie, you liked him in that moment. And that's a very, very big. Here's I mean, the the comparison to that, you know, is, you know, the very, very famous um, the moment in the 1988 presidential. I know where you're going right now, Ross. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Maybe you were going to go there is exactly when, you know, um, Mike Dukakis is asked, um, you know, if, if Kitty Dukakis was, you know, brutally raped and murdered, what would you, you know, would you be for the death penalty? Right. Um, and, and he gives this kind of boiler. He's very he, clinical yeah. answer. No, no, I'm not, you know, and no emotion, no, nothing. Instead of, you know, I mean, uh, Roger Ailes, who, whether you, you know, loved him or hated him, was somebody who knew something about charisma and 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 made a career out of that would say, you know, the, the right answer would have been, you mean before or after I ripped him apart with my bare hands? <laughs> or I think the answer was, I would have be, I'd be crazy. If this happened to my wife, I'd be crazy. That's why, uh, that's why the justice system exists. We have a civilization to mete out, you know, punishment that isn't the most crazy person at the moment. I mean, because it was a death penalty question. That's what yeah. Shaw was asking. Bernie, Bernie Shaw was asking yeah, a death Bernie penalty Shaw. question. And, and he, you know, what Dukakis could have said was, I would be so crazy that I would be the wrong person to make a decision about what to do about this. Uh, but yeah, he just didn't, he didn't have that in him at the moment. Russ, I'm wondering. No emotion. <laughs> no. Well, you know, I mean, uh, in uh, November of 1988, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember November of 1988, uh, after the election, David Letterman did a top 10 list. It was a top 10 Dukakis excuses for losing the election. I think number eight was it's just a big popularity contest, um, which which is which is a problem. But I'm also wondering, Russ, do you feel as though this any aspect of what we're talking about right now is changing because of social media, because of uh, just a, a very faster moving information constellation, and maybe also because stuff just sits on YouTube forever. Things that you say will be around uh, all the time. Does that affect how we perceive the charisma, the appeal, the it factor? Yeah. So, you know, coming up in this business and, you know, I I was I was a kid who, you know, for fun would read the the, the really interesting, you know, uh, Teddy Theodore White books about the making of the presidency and, you know, books like uh, What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer, where, you know, you know, I I kind of poured through all of those. And, and, And that talked about a politics where the candidates and the candidacies were very much more controlled. There's that great book, the 1968, the selling of the presidency, mm-hmm. where, where candidates were packaged and really, you know, where you were able to kind of present a public figure. And we were often very surprised. And when you think about it, when you first heard the the Watergate tapes, one of the shocks was, was that Nixon's was swearing mm. foul language. And we we had never heard public officials talk like that before. And 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 now. It, it's all kind of unplugged, right? It's all kind of, you know, reality television. It's, you know, if you're out there in the public, there's a camera, you have to assume that there's a camera turned on and tuned into you 24 hours a day. 
And so therefore, it's very hard to be packaged in the way the candidates were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You have that authenticity is going to get through. Who you are is much, much more transparent than it was um, years ago. And I think that plays into um, the benefit of certain candidates. I mean, certainly it plays into the benefit. I personally, I think of a guy like a Chris Christie, where he's given a, a moment and he's able to kind of, you know, show who he is. Um, it, I think it also plays against a candidate in this particular primary, like a Ron DeSantis, who is not particularly comfortable in his skin. And it's much, becomes much, much harder for him um, to get his message out because he just does not appear to be as authentic as, as as maybe some others do. I think also, you know, with somebody like DeSantis, there's a kind of cascading effect, too. Once you get stamped a certain way or there's a perception about you, it just sort of grows and grows. And you, then you're eating pudding with your fingers or some damn thing. And it just becomes a everything becomes a confirmation uh, of that initial impression, that, you know, 250 millisecond impression. Uh, oh, you're like this. And then people see everything or, else as confirmation of that. I, I, you know, I'll go, I'll go back. I mean, go back to the, the example that you used with the Bush to caucus debate. I mean, you know, Bush, uh, you know, looked at his watch during one of those debates and, you know, all of a sudden he didn't care um, about, you know, the debate couldn't, you know, really couldn't be bothered with his time. And he got, he gets, you get pegged with these things that you get pegged as being out of touch. And then it was the scanner that imp- the incident with a, with a <laughs> scanner at a grocery store. And he <laughs> allegedly didn't know what it was when he, when he actually did know what it was. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But it was like, what wizardry is this? <laughs> what but, is this you know, strange red light? Conversation. Anyway, the, 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 but the point being is that it is, you, you, once you are pegged with this, it is very hard to shake it. Right. I just want to quickly say it was uh, Bush looked, looked at his watch in 1992 uh, against Clinton. Yeah, that was well, the problem. Yeah. Uh, that uh, which was, yeah, it was the debate against against Clinton. Yeah. So let me ask you the question, and this is why you get the big bucks, because uh, you will know the answer to this question. Why <laughs> Why does someone like Michael Dukakis win a nomination? Why Why are there frequently people who do well in the primaries, maybe even to the point of securing a nomination, with a relatively little curb appeal? You know, the, I mean, whatever we're ca- going to call, however we're going to explain charisma, why are there <laughs> major party nominations yeah. of people who don't have it? Um, a couple of reasons. One is uh, primaries are a different animal that they're that they are. They're more of a uh, very often they're coalition battles. Groups are turning out to support different candidates. They're multi-candidate races, particularly early on until the field starts to winnow down. And there, while there is a lot of attention being paid to them. The, the the real white hot spotlight really doesn't come on until um, you have the two nominees when most people are making detention, uh, they're paying attention and you're getting your partisans are being, you know, Democrat partisans or Republican partisans are making are making these decisions and they may be making decisions on who's the more pro-choice candidate, who's the more pro-gun candidate. Um, you know, which candidate reflects my regional values better? Who's more evangelical? I mean, I mean, uh, other other instances come in, come into play there. And it isn't until the general election when we have two people kind of running against one another that we do start to judge, you know, who is the more charismatic, who has more of it than the other person. I mean, clearly, 
you know, a George W. Bush had enough of it to be elected in 1988 against Dukakis, but didn't have enough of it after being president for four years and having a 92% approval rating at one point, didn't have enough of it to beat Bill Clinton. Yeah, and um, I wonder, I wonder, Russ, if there's a, another interesting example of that um, and that's a little bit closer and probably very pain, painful for you to think about. But so, oh, wait, you've got John McCain, who I think arguably has charisma. Uh, you know, he's a war hero. He's kind of quick with a joke. You know, he's at, yeah. he's at home in his ease in his own body. Um, he's personable. He knows how to work the press. He does stuff like on tour buses where he'll pick a reporter, sit next to me for an hour, which is a very smart thing to do, particularly have the, if you have the personality to carry it off. It could be argued that Obama's coolness, which I think existed in two different ways. He was cool in the sense of kind of hip and young and, you know, on top of things. But he's also a very cool customer. To, to me, that doesn't equate to, to charisma. But it felt like at the moment we were in the 08 financial crisis. And I'm thinking maybe one of the things that Obama did was he didn't have the conventional sizzle kind of of charisma, but maybe he came across as like, yeah, I got this. I could figure this thing out. And, and he made McCain gradually also, I think, seem older. But I'd love your thoughts and, and before we break. Well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, listen, I think by the time that that um the, the financial crisis happened, the, the the campaign was, the dynamics of that campaign were pretty much set. The trajectory was set. I, I think it would be very hard to argue that it was not the, it was not seen as being for Obama was the cool choice. Um, it was the hip choice, was the, you know, I mean, when you look at the number of celebrities that were endorsing him and supporting him, you look at sort of the, 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 the attention that he was getting in the media as being kind of new and different. I mean, next to sort of being it, new is one of the strongest <laughs> things in advertising that you can sell. And one thing that John McCain couldn't be was new. Absolutely. One thing and, and Barack he, Obama always was or was in that during that campaign was new and fresh. Yeah. And McCain actually ran that commercial. He said, you know, Obama is the biggest celebrity in the world, but can he do yeah. the job? Um, we're going to have to stop there. Rush Schrieffer, you're so sure. great. It's so wonderful to talk to you. Founding partner of Strategic Partners and Media, a public affairs consulting firm, senior strategist for the Tell It Like It Is Super PAC, supporting Chris Christie for president. Russ, thank you. Thank you so much All for right. your time. Thank you very much. OK, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Like a pipe and slippers by a fireside Matter of fact, we don't know exactly What it is that you've got But ooh, you hit the spot We're back, thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer Senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson She produced this episode, thanks to my friend Greg Who helped me get Russ uh, And uh, we're going to now talk about... Uh, a sort of connected but different topic, uh, and that is the notion of charismatic megafauna. Uh, here to help us do that is uh, Sophie Montserrat, uh, a rewilding manager with Rewilding Europe, who used to be a researcher who studied charismatic megafauna, among other topics. Sophie, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with a definition uh, and maybe some examples. These are the kind of the the animals who who are on the billboards, right? They're they're the animals who become part of the World Wildlife Fund corporate logo. These are the animals that people like and remember. 
Yeah, exactly. You got it right. You, we know which species you are talking about now, and the, the big panda, probably. Um, but so, as, as a general definition, the, the charisma of, of non-human species um, is a general appeal uh, that these species have that um, that cause uh, humans to to feel uh, uh, attracted to these species or to have uh, some kind of interest. Um, so. That's just a very general definition because it's it's actually very difficult to pinpoint, um, as we've heard also for for human charisma, um, and it's it's a definition that is of course variable depending on which group of humans you will ask to, depending on the culture, on the place where you're sitting, on on your background, etc. So it's a relative definition, but there are some essential components that uh, make a species more charismatic than another. And um, and that's what I'm, I can maybe talk about. And and in particular, there's this um, uh, study by a ge geographer and associate professor in Oxford who's called Jamie Lorimer. And in 2007, he tried to give a, a typology of what could be non-human charisma and how you measure it and how you define it. And he explained it along four uh, axes. Um, the first one is the, the detec detectability of a species, because if you are not able to see a species, it will have a, a very low charismatic value. Just people are not really interested in, in species that live underground, that uh, are nocturnal, that live in the depth of the ocean. Uh, they're just not really on the on the front line. So detectability is the first one. The second one would be the, the aesthetic appeal. So how these species look like and does it trigger certain emotions um, that could be both positive or negative, but, but generally just triggering an emotion because they look interesting to us. Um, another one is the, the economic value, uh, which is a bit of a, a bad term maybe, but the, whether we are interested in these species because they might provide some benefit or costs to us. And the last one is a bit more um, conceptual. It's just a, the emotion that you feel, the, the intellectual satisfaction of, of seeing that species, um, which could be an emotion that could be positive where you were in, in awe of the species or, or negative if you're afraid, for example. Right. So and altogether, it, these, these different characteristics um, building towards yeah, this definition. And, and um, the, somewhere in the, the first one, detectability, I think size can be important. Um, I mean, megafauna, <laughs> it's right there in the word. Um, so I, I wonder also, Sophie, whether it has something to do with imprinting that we do as children. I mean, we read as children, let's say, the Babar children's books. We fall in love with elephants. Um, you know, there's sort of a, I wonder if there are ways in which I don't know. There's a chicken egg problem. Which comes first? But but it seems like the stories that we share with our children make the children love a certain animal. Of course, yes. And I was going to say it's a chicken and egg problem because, of course, you can you can decide. People uh, want to sell their books and their uh, Disney movies, so they will choose the the right species for that. But um, but it also tells you because we are imprinted by by what we've grown up with, uh, that we can also um, influence what, what species might find charismatic. So there is a certain power there in, in choosing which species we will put in the front line of these books, how we will uh, portray them. So usually, for example, you have, I don't know, species like hyenas uh, are usually portrayed pretty badly in right. in, in popular um, books and, and, and animation movies etc so so here you make a choice to give this animal a certain image and we can reverse that choice so that also gives us some 
some space here to to manipulate a bit the perceived charisma. Right. A hyena is definitely need to rebrand. But um, I'm also, we should talk a little bit about the effect of this. I mean, it's it's sort of unfair that we care about some animals more than we care about other animals. But caring about charismatic megafauna can sometimes help all the animals. Here at the Colin McEnroe Show, our, our, our animal symbol is the tapir or tapir, uh, and it's not a charismatic megafauna at all. But if you care about the jaguar, you probably care about the endangered habitat that, at least in South America, the tapir or tapir or Central America would be living in. So care about one animal and you care about the ecosystem in a way, right? Right, exactly. You got it right. I think um, charismatic, especially megafauna, they can have a role as a well as a flagship species, as we say, which is a, a species that will just attract the attention and maybe of of funders or of big NGOs, uh, conservation NGOs. So these are flagship species. But what you decri- describe here is more the concept of umbrella species. So imagine an umbrella where uh, you're under it and you're protected, but everyone else around uh, under the umbrella is also protected. So that would be the case of that jaguar. You have suddenly the because they need huge habitats and they, they they can move along very big spaces so then you need to protect the entire area and many many other species of wildlife of plants insects fungi whatever they, they all they all you know live there so that can definitely be a positive aspect and and that's what has been um talked about in, in terms of why would we even want to use charismatic uh species to to move conservation forward and of course, there's also um, negative aspects of that because because we take away the attention of other species that might be equally important. So if you don't have a jaguar, does that mean you're not protecting the habitat uh, because you're ignoring all the rest of the biodiversity? That is a risk because we don't have jaguars or tigers or lions everywhere. So so there's a it's a yeah two side coin uh, definitely. I think it's also it's the opposite of biodiversity too. I mean, there's a way in which you know we we had an expert about ticks on a few days ago, and uh, she said I wouldn't kill all the ticks in the world. They they have a function. There's ways in which birds get to eat certain things because of ticks. But I mean, if you're not a charismatic megafauna and you're not under the right umbrella, that's the opposite of biodiversity, and it can probably cause some fairly myopic thinking about these things. Yes, it is. It is very partial to to some groups. Um, Fortunately, to, to some level, um, it was shown that charisma in non-human species correlate very much with the, the body mass of these species. So it tends to be <laughs> very big species. Yes. And fortunately, these species also have a very important role for the ecosystem. So if, you, if you're talking about ticks, so the ticks, they, they still need a host. You can't preserve, you can't save the ticks without saving the, the ungulate or the animal that it's that it's living on. Right. They get so on the backs of rhinos and birds can eat the ticks. Sophie, forgive my rudeness. Yeah. We're just out of time. Sophie Montserrat uh, is a rewilding manager with Rewilding Europe, used to be a researcher who studied charismatic megafauna, among other topics. Thanks for listening today. We have to go. Thanks again, Sophie, too. Yeah,